Hi, this is Zoe Durand. Um, this is the Inside Family Law podcast, and I'm very lucky and privileged to be here today with the woman of the moment, um, Talia Blyer. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Zoe. Thank you for having me. No, no, no my pleasure. Look, obviously, and we'll get down to this soon, I really wanted to speak with you, Talia, um, about your upcoming High Court case. Yes. But just by way of background so that listeners can understand a bit about you, um, what is what is your role and what is it that you do? So I'm the solicitor and practice, or I am a solicitor and the practice manager at Steiner Legal. Um, we're a boutique family law firm in Piermont in Sydney. Um, the majority of the work we do is in family law, uh, IVF and surrogacy, and also some estate planning and uh, disputes. Um, and that's me, really. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And this, just to get down to business, this current. Um, matter that's before before the high court coming for the high court this is one you've had for some time i imagine yes it's um i've had this matter now for just over five years it's actually one of the first um one of the first matters that was big matters that was handed to me and i was basically told to take it and run with it um and and, you have <laughs> and i have I, yeah we yeah we've absolutely done that but i think i think what's amazing about it is that my client when he first came in to see me so I represent um, Mr Masson who's the appellant in the in the High Court matter um, when he came in to see me the first thing he said was I'm worried and I think this matter is going to end up in the High Court and um, at the time I didn't take him too seriously but as it's <laughs> as it's gone on it's become very clear that he was right um, and here we are yeah well look I think that there's obviously there's a lot riding on this matter there's a lot of people from all different perspectives who are watching this with great interest, mm. including, obviously, um, Christian Porter, the Attorney General. Yes. Has <laughs> recently yes. also expressed some interest in the matter. Yes, in our support, which is, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. No, that is interesting. Just to step back a bit, for people that might have just seen a headline popping up on their news feed but don't really understand um, what it's about, I mean, obviously you can't go into anything privileged, but just mm. the facts that are publicly available, can you tell me a bit about... Um, the situation, the circumstances that led to this dispute? Yeah, of course. So what happened was, is my client and his best friend of 30 years um, basically decided that they were going to co-parent a child together. This was about 12 years ago now, they, they decided this, and they uh, pretty much conceived a child at home, not naturally, so it was by way of artificial insemination. After the child was born, uh, my client played a parental role in, in the child's life. And uh, she called him dad and she, you know, took him to school concerts and parent-teacher interviews. Um, he did lifts to and from school, to and from ballet, cello, all sorts of um, uh, activities and, and roles, I guess, that you'd expect a parent to do for, for their child. Mum had met a a woman and they entered into a relationship while she was pregnant with um, my client's daughter. The um, second daughter or the first daughter? The, the first daughter, daughter. yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so then mum started a de facto relationship with, with another woman. Um, the child calls her biological mother mum or mummy, um, calls my client dad or daddy and mum's partner she calls by her name um but you know there's no argument or any dispute that both women have played an integral role and, and a parental sure. role in in the child's life um some years later uh the the women had another child uh, my client was not involved in that um 
process, so is not biologically related to the second child, um, but has also played a parental role in her life. Um, both children spend time with him at the same time and, all, and, and so on. Um, he also, you know, did the ballet pickups, the school pickups, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it for her as well. Um, and when the kids were eight and nine, uh, mum and mummy decided to uh, that they wanted to move to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and and at that point in time, my client was was not very happy with that and was concerned about the children having their relationship with him severed. Mm-hmm. Um, and family court proceedings started, um, and they've sort of gone through the court now and um four, I can, five years yeah, later. four or five years later we had a, um, a decision by justice cleary in two th- uh, 2017 we had a full court appeal that was decided june last year that didn't go in your client that favor. didn't go in out yep. in my client's favor so we were unsuccessful on that and um and then he filed an application for special leave to the high court which was especially uh, was granted December last year, and we have a hearing next week before the full court or the full bench of the High Court. So, what exactly? What is the real key? Like, what is the what is the issue? Like, what is it that your client is, is seeking? Yeah. So the so the legal issue that really ran through the the entire case um, was who can be a parent sure. of children. Mm. So, um, as the Family Law Act. Uh, says in section 60h um, if a woman has a child by way of artificial insemination or artificial conception then the she is a parent of that child and if she has a de facto partner at the time of conception then that woman would be the second parent Mm. Um, that section also you know it goes through several different um, possibilities about when a child is conceived by way of artificial conception Um, we ran a case before Justice Cleary, which was in the uh, initial hearing, that the women were not in a de facto relationship at the time of conception. We were successful on that point, and that was not overturned um, before the full court. Um, and we said that because the eldest child only had one parent, so we're only talking about the eldest child here sure. because the youngest child has two parents, being the two women. Mm-hmm. Um, but we said that the eldest child had one parent, and because she had one parent, the door was open or there was a possibility that our client, despite being a donor for legal purposes, mm. could also be a legal parent. Um, you know, there's been other cases such as Groth and Banks that have found uh, a donor to be a parent. Um, we relied on authorities like that. Um, Justice Cleary accepted that argument. She said, yes, he can be a legal parent mm-hmm. and, um, and everything was great. When the appeal came about, it was um, an appeal uh, because what the mother said, um, and it was Brett Walker, senior counsel, who led um, that case for them before the full court, um, they said that the judgment was wrong because the Status of Children Act in New South Wales says that a donor cannot be a parent and is not a father. So they said that uh, that act should have been picked up by the, the family court and the family law act and therefore um, our client could not be a parent mm-hmm. the full court of the family court agreed with that um, and, and now really the the high court question is was that correct or not was the uh, the fact that the state act was picked up and applied in the federal act was it actually um, correct or should the um, the federal act have applied without um, any consideration of what the states say. Um, 
And obviously you would be arguing... We're arguing that... <laughs> yeah, we're arguing that the Family Law Act clearly defines who can be a parent. And they do that by keeping it very broad in saying that... Um, Section 4 says that the word parent includes an adoptive parent. Mm. It doesn't say that, for example, a donor cannot be a parent. Mm. Um, and we're also saying that in Section 60H, none of those sections apply because it doesn't prescribe any state laws that should be referred to mm. when it comes to who can be um, a parent, basically. Um, when it comes to a father. Um, so so that's, that's our case basically is that the Family Law Act doesn't define it and therefore what the State Act says is irrelevant. Mm, no, look, very interesting. And look, I suppose there's a lot of technical, which I, I don't know if we'll get into today, arguments that, you know, can be made. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm sort of interested in this. I mean, is it the case or what's your sort of understanding or reading of Section 60H in the Family Law Act? Is it kind of implied that there can only be two parents or not necessarily? Or It seems how... to be accepted. Mm. Um, it's always been my reading of the Family Law Act that someone can have two parents and two parents only. Mm. Um, so and I don't have Section 60, I don't have the, the Act in front of me, but there's a, a few parts of it that say, a meaningful relationship with each of their parents mm. and another wording that suggests that um, it should only be two. Mm. Um, and certainly there's never been a case where two people have been recognised, more than two people have been recognised mm. as parents. Um, two, more than two people can have parental responsibility for a child. Sure. Um, because of, and of course, um, parental responsibility is ordinarily afforded to a parent. Um, and there's been plenty of cases where three or four people have been... Grandparents. Yeah, grandparents sure. have been given parental responsibility or there are some cases where two couples, for example, two men and two women would be probably the um, most common example where they embark upon a process of, of starting a family mm. uh, where there are four parents and mm. they apply to the family court for consent orders that give all four of them parental responsibility. Um, but not all four would be regarded as not parents. Not all four would be regarded as parents, though, that's right. Mm. So you, if that you had that case, the, the legal parents would generally be the two women, mm. um, assuming, of course, the child was conceived by way of artificial conception, mm. uh, but then the two dads could obtain parental responsibility. Mm. Um, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, while we go down this route, it's, it's an interesting question because um, I, guess, I guess the problem is is that you have four people then with parental responsibility and then what happens if one of those couples breaks up? Mm. And then all of a sudden you've got perhaps an intact couple and then two single people all with parental mm. responsibility. Mm. Everyone's obviously got standing um, to make sure. an application to the family court and between how many houses <laughs> can a child live? Um, uh, so, so I guess there's, it's fraught with um, perhaps potential issues the more people we expand this to. But... What about the child's experience? And what I about their reality? That's, that, yeah, that's their reality. I'm, that's something I'm really interested in. So, in, I mean, I've done a bit of reading, obviously, before our interview, and one thing I was thinking about is you've got a 9- and 11-year-old girls. Mm. What about their... I mean, obviously, children's best interest is the paramount... has always been the paramount principle, but what about their wishes or their views or their experience? What role has that played in the in, in this matter? In, in the pursuit, yeah. yeah. And I think that's a, it's a great question because it should always be the most important thing um, and... Uh, the children, when they were interviewed by the family report writer for the first hearing, um, 
they said that basically they had a daddy and they had a mummy and they had another parent who they call by their name so I won't I won't mention that name but the the report writer found that he was a parent um, in the way, to, the in the way that the children world. experience the world he yeah. was their parent and you know they they have daddy picking them up from school and they have someone they call daddy and they're talking to their friends at school and they understand him to be a person in the same way their friends have a daddy mm. um, so for the youngest child the report writer said that uh, did know, the youngest child also call him daddy yeah okay so yeah, the one, that wasn't biologically. The, the one that wasn't biologically related, yeah, also called him daddy and still calls him daddy. Um, the he, He's basically a psychological parent to her or a psychological father. Mm. Um, and, and at no point in, in this case has it ever been my client's position that the two mothers are not parents and they're not mothers to the children and have a very significant relationship with the children because, of course, they do. They're the primary live with um, sure. uh, with the place where the kids live um, and his position is just being that he is also significant and regarded by the children as their father um, and and that yeah ultimately he should be recognized as such at least you know for his biological daughter I'm just curious to dig into was there an agreement like what was the agreement was it oral was it written what was it was there any kind of concrete agreement going into this endeavour with the artificial insemination originally? There wasn't. Mm-hmm. And and that was, I think, probably the, the biggest uh, learning point probably from this case is Everyone have an agreement. Everyone listening up in this situation, yeah. Yeah. listening, this is yeah. the key or yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is the Listen. key, <laughs> is that if you're going to enter into a, um, an arrangement with someone that you know um, to be a donor for, for your child, make sure that you do have a written agreement in place. Um, that agreement is not enforceable. And of course, like you mentioned, Zoe, the children's best interests always are paramount. So ultimately, if a child is eight or nine years old and uh, the agreement says something different, then um, you know the child's best interests are going to always come first and that agreement may be disregarded. But have an agreement in place that at least documents everyone's intentions at the time of conception. So then you can always you know, refer to it back and say, well, we agreed we would co-parent or you agreed you would be a donor and you would have no relationship with Mm. the child. At least have something there. Mm. And then the other thing I always recommend is, um, and this is not just from a legal point of view, but from a a point of view of just making sure everyone's on the same page so you can avoid a dispute, is have counselling. Have extensive counselling. If you're going through a clinic, don't just rely on on the counselling you have to do to go through that process. And that the counselling that um, the clinics offer is fantastic. It's it's impeccable and it's very very thorough. But have a private counsellor as well. Sit and go through, map out everything. Do you expect to be involved in birthdays? Do you expect to be involved in Christmas? Would you be concerned if we wanted to move overseas or move mm. two hours away talk about these things because if you don't talk about them and then all of a sudden something happens then you end up in the family court arguing about it and, and possibly um, going to the and court possibly yeah well yeah that's right that's <laughs> right and hopefully we'll get some clarity i suppose but i mean you know the, the family law act is what it is and the child's best interests come first so legal parent or not really um if you're gonna have a known donor there's always a risk that um, that something um, something could come up in dispute, um, and I think I think also because there is some view, at least uh, my observation or my view is, 
from the court that biology is important to some extent. Yeah, it's I wanted not, to get to yeah. that. I wanted to ask, this sort of raises to me, I mean, look, I, I get a bit philosophical with these things sometimes, but I guess when you're looking at what is a parent, what is the role of biology in parenthood, mm. do you think? What does this case show us? Well, I think from a, from a legal point of view, um, I guess the jury is out at the moment because our case is that parents should be given natural and ordinary meaning um, mm. where it's not specifically defined in the Family Law Act and natural and ordinary meaning, you know, it's biology. Mm. You know, a parent is someone who is biologically related to their child. Um, so th- this case will decide that from a legal point of view. But I think that um, you can't say that biology is the only factor because particularly with same-sex families or adopted children, Mm. um, children are having parental relationships and have parents that are not biologically related to them. And there's certainly... um, And they're still their parents. And they're still their parents. I'm actually adopted. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and, and, you know, if you grow up... um, If you grow up with your parents, it doesn't modify or reduce or take away from your relationship with your parents just because you're not biologically related to them Mm. so I think that biology should play some role um, but I don't think it's a determinative it shouldn't be a determinative factor but if you're biologically related and you play the role of a parent and live that role um, I guess you go down other courses where children may have parents that leave um, when, when they're young and then come back and they say but you know we're biologically related, we're family and people have different views about that too and that's obviously mm. moving away from a family law side of things but, but just, just thinking generally, yeah, how people live their yeah. lives and, um, you know, how you define family ultimately. Well, I think it's, I mean, what's sort of interesting is, and I guess we're circling back around to this, but I find this whole thing about the two parents and can, I sort of feel like are we at a point now where, and often these sort of cases when they go to the high court, it is at the point where you're at the kind of, you're at the, thresholds you're at the frontier you're kind of straining as to what like where is the law at does is is the law in discomfort with reality do you know what i mean yes like is it that the law is perhaps not able to fulfill like not able to capture real life right now Mm. as it stands because Mm. is it bit 1950s this kind of there's always two parents and does that really reflect modern uh, society society. yeah Yeah. like i mean yeah people are in this polyamorous sometimes relationships yeah. as well not just yeah. sperm donor situations mm. or in other situations where their family's system is more complicated than just that traditional family structure yeah i wanted to ask you about that yeah yeah i think um i think that i have a kind of split view on it because okay. i think that the broad way that parent is dealt with in the family law act in that it it doesn't define a parent to me says that there was meant to be some movement in the act to adapt over time as families adapted because we didn't have a definition that said a parent is or are the biological and excluding you know, and excludes these people yeah, yeah. Um, so I think in some way that there, there was a hope it's yeah. not exhaustive um, and that's certainly my client's case in the high court um, but I think the fact that where you only seem to be able to have two parents I think that may be out of step with some community groups and some some people yes some families because um you know a lot of the work I do is with the LGBTIQ community Mm. and like I mentioned there are a lot of families out there that are two women and two men that have embarked upon a course of having having this family 
um, where they have four parents. Mm. Um, and, and they can get parental responsibility. They can get parental responsibility. Parents, and, yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and I, think that, I think that we should be able to recognise that. Ontario in Canada, you can now have up to four parents um, of a child, legal parents of a child, where everyone agrees. And I think that models like that are certainly moving towards recognising children's experiences and, and society now. Um, mm. And I think, I think that perhaps, I mean, obviously the ALRC report was released yesterday and there's, um, mm. uh, I haven't read it in detail yet, but there's a, a lot the in there. Yeah, I, read, yeah, I read the same part for now. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I think that obviously there's going to be hopefully a, a big overthrow of the family law system. Um, and maybe it's time that we did look at broadening the field for certain circumstances. Now, my, I guess my thought is how do we do this in a smart way that doesn't, you know... Have unintended open, negative Yeah, have unintended, yeah, exactly, yeah. and we'll open up, you know, basically have everyone, you know, uh, in disarray about what could happen and concern, and, and reasonably so. I mean, you, you need to have certainty about who are parents. So my thought is, is... You have a sur- we have a surrogacy act in New South Wales that sets out a very clear process for how two men can have a child through surrogacy and have a parentage order made that makes them the legal parents and they get a birth certificate with both their names on it um, and, it- and everything they need. If we And there's very strict preconditions and mandatory conditions and um, counselling requirements and everything in that that, um, that makes the system, in my view, very strong. If we had some sort of an act or some sort of a process where if more than two people or a donor and a, and a woman or you know a man and a woman that were not in a relationship were going to conceive a child and there was an intention that they co-parent, that could we not have a, an act that said you must have a donor agreement before, you must have separate counselling, you must have counselling together, you must do all of these things and if you do all of those things then post-birth you can apply, be it through the Supreme Court perhaps, um, for a parentage order that recognises those people as legal parents. Or maybe it's through the family court where you can obtain your consent orders or something along those lines. But have a process, restrict it, make it firm, make it clear. Um, clear. People need clarity. Yeah. They do need clarity. Yeah, make yeah. it clear. And if you don't do all of those things, then you can't. You maybe you can't be recognised as a legal parent and... And if there ever is a dispute, then, you know, we default back to the ordinary position of the Family Law Act, which is if you're a person concerned, then you can apply for parenting orders and best interests will make the decision. But mm. if we have a framework, then we have certainty, we have clarity. That That's my solution. But of course, <laughs> you know, in, in my perfect world, that's what we would have. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, um, <laughs> you know, maybe I've got a, um, maybe that's a political <laughs> future attorney yeah, general yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. you know anyway but that's that's my thought of what we should what would perhaps help the situation what do you think i mean obviously people like so there's i think there's a lot of families a lot of the people um, watching this case mm. um maybe people who have used you know sperm donor to conceive a child mm. and there'd be people kind of pitting on one side and the other and hoping it goes one way or the other yeah what do you think are the implications if it goes either way like if it so for both ways yeah i think i think that the implications if if we're successful so that is that that my client can be recognized as a legal parent it opens up the potential for a lot of donors to be recognized as parents where they've been um very involved in their child's life mm. 
Um, and there's a lot of known donors out there that are in that situation. So it, it perhaps means that, that we, we're going to have more applications for people to be recognised as a parent. Um, if is, we're, is that a good or a bad thing? Or I is think, that just a thing? I think it's a good thing um, if we're thinking about the experience of the child mm-hmm. and a good thing if it really was the intention that, that you know, two people co-parent. I think that the negative if we're successful is is that it will act potentially as a deterrent for people to um, for, for women female couples for example or or couples generally if they um, heterosexual couples if they can't conceive it might may be a deterrent for them to use a known donor um, and then I think there's considerations about the Convention of the Rights of the Child there and known donors have significant benefits in terms of a child having a relationship with or have knowledge or connection to their bio- biology because yeah. that's one of the articles of the convention. I think it's Article Eight. Um, so you know we need to th- we need to think about that too. So perhaps if it is a deterrent, that's that's a negative. Um, if we are successful, I think if we're um, if we're unsuccessful and it's mm. said that he can't be a parent, um, I think that the I think that's a positive in terms of certainty of parentage for particularly same-sex couples that have used known donors and are concerned or um, for single women who have had no involvement with their with their donor because of course this case is only really de- um, asking for clarification where there has been a single woman mm. I should make that clear and I don't perhaps I haven't made that very clear we're only asking for clarification about a donor being a legal parent where the woman was single at the time yeah. of conception. And it's good to clarify that because I yeah. think it's sort of bled out into the media and maybe it's not completely understood. Yeah, so yeah I think that's clarify right. that again. Yeah, so. so the case is asking for clarification about where a woman is single at the time of conception, can the donor be recognised as a parent? Sure. That's what we're seeking. If you have two women or a man and a woman who are in a relationship at the time of conception... There is no uncertainty about the law in that yeah, regard. Sure, I agree. We know that that child has two parents and those two parents are the birth mother and her partner, be it mm-hmm. male or female, providing everyone consented to the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think if we're unsuccessful, there'll be some certainty for, for single women who have used donors who have perhaps have had um, a change of heart post-conception um, about what type of relationship they may like to have with with the child um, and I think that's a message that that I've certainly mentioned quite a bit in talking about this case and also in giving advice to clients because I do a lot of advice in the pre-IVF or pre-ART um, conception of children mm-hmm. is don't underestimate the connection you're going to have with a baby or a child once you hold that baby in your arms and for a known donor they may very much want to just help out a friend who has not been able to conceive for some reason or doesn't have a partner and great idea you know I'll pop up and see the child every couple of months when I catch up with mum but the moment that that dad or that donor I should say is put the correct term in that situation holds the baby be it just you know to to meet the child or whatever it is you can't underestimate what connection they may feel I don't have children myself, but I've certainly anecdotally heard from a lot of parents that you don't realise exactly what it's going to feel like until you hold your child, mm. that, you've, that you have a biological connection to not or not. Not That's yeah. right. Um, and I think that's, that's probably the, the, the key is that, um, yeah. Okay. 
Um, so look, I guess when when's what's the time frame for this? So when we're all, we're all waiting with beta breath. Beta, yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. what's next? So the hearing is next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, before the full bench of the High Court. Um, it may spill over onto Wednesday, depending on, on how we go. Um, as I mentioned, the Commonwealth Attorney-General has intervened, as has Victoria. Um, I should He's say interested the... in family law. I'm not yeah, saying. yeah, 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 <laughs> That's exactly. Anyway. That's right, yeah. which is great. Um, so the Commonwealth Attorney-General, he supports our case. Um, so he says that the Family Law Act should not um, be meddled with, I suppose, by state law on on parentage or ART. Um, the Victoria Attorney General has intervened in support of the mother's case. So to say that... Yes, yeah, yeah. So they say that the state law should have, have a say. Um, so uh, it, it's certainly going to be a busy few days or day um, before the full bench and hopefully we'll get um, have a judgment uh, soon. But um, I'd say, I'd probably guess we're pro- waiting at least three or four months. Three or four months. Um, and... Who's involved in so obviously you're you've been running this case as you said since day one when the yeah. client walked into your yeah. office. Yes. Who else? What are the other barristers involved that you've that we yeah, yeah. so um debriefed? so Stephen Donahue, who's the Solicitor General of the Commonwealth, is acting for uh, the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel Doyle, Senior Counsel, is appearing for the Victoria Attorney General. Mm-hmm. Um, Brett Walker, Senior Counsel, is acting for the Mothers. And who are the solicitors? Who the are solicitors who are acting for the mothers is McDonald Johnson lawyers um, up in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. Of course, the matter was heard in the Newcastle Registry of the Family Court. Um, and we've got uh, Michael Carney, Senior Counsel, um, Craig Lenahan, David Hume and Esther Lawson um, mm-hmm. for the appellant. Um, so it's certainly... A, um, a big team. A big, a big team. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, uh, yeah there's, there's some big, big names up there, so... Yeah. Well, look, I guess right now you're living and breathing. I'm lucky to have this interview with you. Thank you. No, that's my, my pleasure. Thank you for, for asking to, to talk to me. All right. Well, look, thank you very much. And um, keep listening along. We'll have some other really interesting um, interviews in the next um, few weeks on Inside Family Law, the uncut version, because I actually don't know how to edit yet, with um, Zoe Duran. This is Talia Blyer um, from Steiner Legal. Thanks, Talia. Thanks, Zoe.